Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gercheck. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Michelle Polos to our show. Ms. Polos is the Dean of Arts and Sciences at East Coast Polytechnic Institute in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Hi, Michelle. So glad to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Can you talk a little bit about your college and why students select your institution? Absolutely. ECPI was founded in 1966 and promotes student-centered learning environments as well as personal and professional development through education. We offer associates, bachelor's, and master's degrees, and our programs are offered in criminal justice, computer information systems, electronics engineering, mechatronics, business, healthcare, um, and nursing. ECPI is an accredited institution. We're accredited by the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges, or SACS, and we hold specific programmatic accreditation. We have 16 ground campuses as well as our online campus, and a lot of our ground campuses are in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and even Texas. Holy cow, that's that's a lot of land to be covering for some colleges. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, what's new on campus or campuses? Not, well, yes, because we have multiple. Uh, it's not necessarily new per se, but we do have an accelerated pace with five-week terms. So one of the things that's most interesting and probably drives a lot of students is that we promote zero to bachelors in two and a half years. We also utilize a lot of innovative technologies, particularly in our health science programs. We created a virtual e-hospital and we use some really neat technologies for health science, um, including the anatomage tables, which allow you to sort of virtually manipulate all sorts of things with the human body, so. You know, I, I actually went to your page and I saw some videos on, that A and P class where that was, you know, my background was in health sciences. And so, you know, we had like everybody else, big SIM labs and AMP labs and everything else. That was really impressive. I bet the students just love that A and P. The students absolutely love interacting with the anatomage tables and our e-hospital, which was very important during the pandemic because it allowed them to sort of simulate some of the things that they would be doing at clinical sites that they weren't able to do, like take blood pressure and um, do things like that, particularly for our medical assistants. So, yeah. So, you know, the, the five week accelerated term is a little bit faster than the other uh, colleges I've talked to over the last couple of years, because when somebody says accelerated, they always refer to the eight week. So when yeah. did you start the five week process? And then tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. We've actually been on a five week term since our inception. So that was sort of the model wow. <laughs> of, the, of the college was that we wanted to get students in, get them educated, and get them out and placed in field. 
Uh, it's actually been extremely successful for us. Uh, we have a lot of students that really appreciate that because they want they're returning to school or they're looking to get their bachelor's very quickly to maybe perhaps advance in a career that they're already in. There are certainly challenges with it, though, you can imagine, because we are accredited. That means we're still awarding the same semester credits that you would get at a traditional institution. So we're essentially cramming 16 weeks of content into five weeks. <laughs> but our students do very well. So do they do that? Do they do one class at a time then? It depends. <clears throat> sometimes, sometimes students will take one class. Sometimes they actually do take two at a mm. time. I see. I see. It depends on the class and the program. As you mentioned before, with like A and P for our lab type classes, obviously they would take a class and a lab, but there are some general education courses where students will take two classes at the same time, say, for example, college algebra and comp one. Well, you know, uh, higher ed sure has been changing, especially with technology. And it sounds like you guys are doing quite a few things in the technology area for your students. So how else are you adapting to this changing landscape? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, we do a lot with virtual reality learning in our programs, while also trying to leverage uh, some of the new and emerging large language models with AI. So part of the virtual reality things that we do are with respect to the e-hospital, but that's actually morphed into more of an e-city where we actually are using some case studies where business students, criminal justice students, um, computer information systems students will all work within this virtual e-city to solve case scenario problems. Uh, so for example, within the city, one of the main networking systems that control the light switches, uh, the traffic lights goes out. So then the computer information system students have to figure out what went wrong and what impact is that having and how do they fix it? Well, that obviously impacts criminal justice because when the lights go awry, there's accidents. So then how does criminal justice respond? So we're using it in that manner to, to really provide real life situations in um, more of a simulated environment. Uh, the other thing that we do is we offer various learning modalities to meet our learners' needs. So while most institutions will offer traditional on-ground classes or perhaps a hybrid class, which is a blend of online and asynchronous, and then also just online classes asynchronously, we actually do a morph of all kind of uh, modalities. So we will do a remote distance learning class where students are actually synchronous, but they're live via Teams or Zoom for their class period. Uh, this allows us to leverage both faculty and allowing students the opportunity to take different classes at different times across multiple campuses. Wow. And then obviously, one of the things that has been changing recently is the increase of prior learning credit which is something that the institution is now doing and, and working towards. So allowing students the ability to demonstrate perhaps learning that they've done previously or in field and get awarded uh, college credit for that. Yeah, I, I always appreciate 
colleges that are trying to really help that because you know, as an adult, you learn so much stuff. And then somebody says, no, we need to have you redo this again. And you can just see it in their face. Really? I've been doing that for five years or 10 years. So, yeah. We have well, a lot of military students that will come to us and, you know, they've been working in engineering. And then you're saying, well, we need you to take college algebra. And they're like, but I do this every day in my job or you have to take physics. Really? I'm, you know, yeah. working on a submarine doing X, Y, Z. So it's a nice option for those students. Yeah. Well, you know, considering the evolving job market, what is your college doing to prepare students for today's workforce? And what career development resources do you guys offer? Great question. As part of their curriculum, students are required to take a career orientation class that's part of all of our programs. And within that class, we assist students with resume writing or adapting their resume, uh, career and networking advice. So talking to them about what social networking areas or organizations they can get involved in to help build their professional network. And they also participate in mock interviews where they're asked interview questions and we provide feedback. Our focus is really obviously on job placement post-graduation. Uh, so we do offer different career service events. We have partnerships with a lot of different um, companies and we focus on externships and internships. So one example that I, I could give is that we offer um, our Charleston campus has an employee partnership with Volvo because they built a new plant there. And so a lot of our students will go there for internship, externship, and then they end up getting hired on after. Well, since you mentioned that, what other things is the college doing to collaborate with local businesses to create mutual beneficial relationships and address some of your regional needs? Mm -hmm. So for each program that we have, we hold regular advisory board meetings with employers that are in attendance, and they share about trends in their respective fields and skills needed for upcoming graduates. So I regularly sit on one of the advisory boards for, let's say, medical assisting in Charleston, and I'm able to hear from the employers in that area what skills our students need to have upon graduation in order to um, more easily get a job. Many of our advisory board members then end up hiring our students upon graduation. And as I mentioned, a great real example would be the business partnership we have in a specific market in Charleston with uh, the Volvo plant that's there. Hmm. Well, can you highlight any unique or innovative programs or approaches that distinguishes your college from other higher ed institutions? Yeah, there's a few things that we do that I'm quite proud of. So as I mentioned, our anatomage tables that are used in our health sciences programs is really cutting edge technology, along with our e-hospital that's morphed into the e-city. It's updated the traditional case study significantly. Um, but then on more of a non-curriculum related side, we have an e-sports program at ECPI that provides opportunities for students to participate in collegiate scholarship programs that promote competitive play, good sportsmanship, and teamwork. Um, and along those lines, ECPI University is a member institution of NACE, or the National Association of Collegiate Esports, which I think is pretty innovative and not a lot of institutions 
are taking part in that. You know, I, when I was just leaving as a dean, <clears throat> excuse me, I that was just coming on and I was trying to get my head wrapped around that. It seemed when I talked to students about it, oh my gosh, they just thought it was the greatest idea and how come we're not doing this today? So, so how long have you been doing that? The eSports started, I want to say in 2019, perhaps. So it's been several years um, and it's mostly done through our CIS program. Um, and they have competed at the you know local and state and national level. And I know it's really fun for the students and they get so into it. And I just, I guess I wouldn't have thought because typically if you're not, when you think of sports within the higher ed realm, you're thinking of like big 10 sports teams and uh, things like that in different divisions. But for some of the maybe smaller schools that don't participate in that, those students still really like that competitive atmosphere. And it definitely does a lot to help build the community sense as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, here's an interesting question. With the rise of alternative cred credentialing, how do you guys or how is the institution working with micro-credentials? And then also with that question, how do you think micro-credentials are going to influence higher ed in the future? Well, there are several ways that I think micro-credentials are impacting the future of higher education. Um, they certainly allow more flexibility to learners, and they also allow individuals to acquire specific skills or knowledge in a shorter time frame and often at a much lower cost compared to traditional degree programs. Uh, because of that, the accessibility and the lower cost, it can attract a broad range of learners, including those who are already in the workforce or ones that want to upskill or reskill. Uh, it certainly promotes a culture of lifelong learning, which is what we're trying to instill in our students. So I also think they're changing the landscape of higher education because at the pace that technology and industry is changing, uh, it certainly allows individuals, there is a need for individuals to continually refine and update their skills and knowledge and micro-credentials are certainly one way to do that. They make it easier for people to engage in continuous improvement and adopt to these ever-changing demands. I do think that previously, maybe employers were a little hesitant to recognize the value that micro-credentials could really bring, but I think that's changing in higher education. I think that employers are sort of demanding that of their employees, this idea of continuous improvement and lifelong learning. And so I think they do certainly see the value in them, um, particularly because it can help demonstrate the candidates practical skills and knowledge, making them more employable um, and more attractive to employees. One of the things that we're doing specifically is we haven't really dove in yet to full-blown micro-credentials, but for the markets that we serve, we do a lot with certifications that I feel are along the same vein. Uh, so particularly in our CIS programs and EET programs, we do a lot with certifications that students can earn that allows them the opportunity to show an 
employer and say, I have earned a certificate in XYZ to further demonstrate their skill in a particular content area or discipline? Well, here's a question that I'm going to have you ask you to look into the future down the road. Um, as technology continues to disrupt traditional industries, how is your college preparing students for jobs that may not even exist yet? <laughs> those those mysterious jobs to come in the future. <laughs> so one of the things that I would say that our institution is doing and we're doing very well is we're trying to focus on critical thinking and problem solving. Because when we encourage students to think critically and solve complex problems and adapt to new situations, that's exactly what's going to be required for any future potential job. So the skills of critical thinking and problem solving are transferable and essential in any job, even ones that might not exist yet. The other thing that we focus on is developing digital literacy. We need to ensure that our students are proficient in digital tools, software, and emerging technologies, like the ones that I mentioned before. Um, this could include the use of coding, data analysis, and understanding artificial intelligence and some of those large language models. <clears throat> it's extremely important to me in arts and sciences that we continue to cultivate soft skills, skills like communication, teamwork and emotional intelligence are going to remain relevant in any job. And then, as I said, we want to expose them to a lot of emerging technologies. So we want to incorporate those technologies into the curriculum and familiarize students with those technologies and their potential applications can help prepare them for jobs that may not exist. The last thing I would say is what we talked about previously with our relationships with partners in the community, but we have to continue to collaborate with industry. We have to maintain those relationships and partnerships with local industries to gain insight into their trends and what they foresee their needs will be in the future. This allows us to align our educational programs to those evolving job markets. That's that's really interesting. I, in other words, you're, you're making sure your students know how to think. They're, it's just not all about psychomotor skills. Exactly. We yeah. have to teach them how to think critically and be evaluators <clears throat> of information, not just consumers of information. Yeah. Well, how is your college incorporating community service and civic engagement into the educational process? This is actually done at all of our campuses locally to support their communities. So I can give you just a couple examples. Uh, we had some faculty working with a, a military magnet academy for a coding event that happened in Charleston, South Carolina. We had faculty and staff collecting and donating toys for families in need from our Charleston campus. Students, faculty, and staff at the Charleston uh, Charlotte campus collected donations to aid hurricane victims, and then they presented that aid in the form of a check to the American Red Cross. Students at our Columbia campus hand out food, toiletries, and clothing um, for part of a homeless project of a blessing bag. Students, faculty, and staff at our Greenboro campus worked with a diversity club to connect, collect donations and create welcome bags 
um, and household supplies for Leslie's House, which is a local organization there that provides a haven for homeless women. Our Newport News Campus hosts an annual Community Day, which is just a day filled with fun and games and a lot of community educational resources. Um, I could go on and on. So it's usually happening in our local markets, but all of our campuses are extremely involved in civil engagement and really giving back to the communities that we serve. Well, let, let's switch focus a little bit and let's focus on you for a second. So can you talk a little bit about the path and your that kind of led you to become the dean at ECPI? Absolutely. So I'm an educator at heart. I began my educational career as an elementary school teacher, and I taught in the elementary area for six years. And then I said, I think I've had enough of the itty bitties. And I moved up and ended up teaching high school for a few years. And then I transitioned into higher education. So when I transitioned into higher ed, it was actually working with Grand Canyon University based out of Phoenix, Arizona. And they were piloting their online full-time faculty program. And what they were doing is they wanted to see if they had online faculty, that that was their full-time job, and they were dedicated, and they had an educational background, not necessarily a discipline-specific background. If those faculty with an education background were brought in to teach the first three courses that students took, would that have a difference in their retention and persistence? And what they found is it does. (laughs) It actually makes a difference. Um, And so I was one of nine that were brought in to pilot that program for them, which has been wildly successful and taken off and is sort of the model that they follow today. So that was my transition into higher education. So how long have you been a dean at ECPI? Great question. I'm sorry, I didn't answer that. So I've been a dean for the past five years. I started at ECPI as a program director overseeing arts and sciences for their online campus only. So I had a role in curriculum development. I did do faculty observations. I worked with faculty. I helped with scheduling faculty. I was a teaching you know, member, so I taught within that discipline. But Um, I was the program director for two years, and then I was promoted into the role of dean, where that just expanded my scope of now I oversee all general education for all of our campuses. So my background is in education, obviously, but it's also in psychology. So when I teach, I typically teach our psychology courses to include intro to psych, as well as human growth and development. So besides graduation, what's your favorite part about being a dean? Oh, working with faculty. While the curriculum piece is wonderful and certainly necessary, uh, you can have the best curriculum, but it's really the faculty members that make it come alive. And if you don't have adept, competent, passionate faculty, then it doesn't really matter how great your curriculum is because that's not going to translate to students. So I would say my favorite part of being a dean is really getting to work with, train, mentor, and help support the faculty that I work with. Here's another question referring to you being 
a dean for the past five years, which is a pretty long time, some time for deans. Uh, what's been some <laughs> of the biggest lessons you've learned so far over these past five years as a in, as an academic leader? The biggest lesson I've learned is that nothing stays the same. <laughs> Change is inevitable. I think that could probably be said for any job, not necessarily academic deans, but I think it's particularly true in education. Uh, things will change. So you have to be ready to, to adapt, be flexible, and be open to new and different ideas. I think that's a lot of where innovation comes from. You can't keep doing things how they've historically always been done, or you're going to continue to get similar results, and there could potentially be better results and better things out there. So that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that things are going to change and you just better get on board with that and get ready for it. Um, the second thing that I've learned over these years is that, um, and I, I guess I would tap into my roots in elementary education, and that is that good education and good teaching is good teaching regardless of the age of student. Um, the age of student might change, their background might change, their knowledge base that they come to us with based on their experiences is going to be different. But the reality is good teaching is good teaching. And there are sound principles of teaching that sort of transcend all of those other things. And I think that has been true for me over the years. The third thing that I would say is that I've found to be true is that the majority of faculty are very selfless and very passionate, and that's inspiring to see. And so I think that that helps keep me motivated on the day to day when I look at my faculty and I see the hard work that they're doing, how dedicated they are and how selfless they can be. And I think that has shown over the years and really doesn't change all that much. You always have a few of the outliers, but the majority of faculty are really there to serve students and to make a difference, and they work really hard to do that. Great point. Um, here's my last question. What advice would you give a prospective student when choosing the right college or university for their education and future goals? Sure. The first thing I would say is they should really start by looking at their goals, their academic goals, their personal goals, and their career goals. What do they want to achieve from their college experience? Do they have a particular major in mind? They should consider things like location, campus size, and campus culture. I would say research a lot. Look at a lot of different institutions and a lot of different universities. Look at their academic programs. You can even look at faculty review reviews, look at their reputation, the resources, their accreditation, what others have to say about the institution. I think it's really important to look at class size because that can play a role for some student success, what they feel most comfortable with. Look at student to faculty ratio and available extracurricular activities, what support services are available. It's also a great idea to ask others who've been where you might want to go. So connect with current students and gain insight into their experiences or look for alumni groups and reach out to get their experience from the institution. 
I think they can provide a lot of information about the academic rigor, the social life, and the support services that were offered. The most important thing, and this is what I tell any student, is trust your instincts and trust your gut. Choose a college where you feel comfortable, where you're going to feel challenged, and where you're going to feel inspired. Because really, when they're happy, their personal happiness and well-being is going to be crucial for their academic success. Excellent points. Excellent points. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time.